1: This is Mike Smith. We start this morning with the developing news in the Meng Wanzhou case and the two Michaels, Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig, both still locked up in China. Canada says China arrested these two Canadians, falsely accused them of being spies in retaliation for Canada's arrest of tech executive Meng Wanzhou. Now, the stunning news here this morning that Canada authorized Meng Wangzhou's family to travel to Canada for a family reunion despite the COVID-19 restrictions. Her husband arrived in October. Her two children arrived in December. They are all still in Canada. What about the two Michaels? The two Michaels still locked up in China while we're letting Meng Wangzhou's family travel to Canada. you got to be kidding me. This is a shocking story this morning that we're going to be uh, following for you. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Raquel Dancho, federal conservative critic for immigration, refugees, and citizenship. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hello. Thank you for coming on.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. Great okay. to be here with you.
1: What are your thoughts on this situation? Like when you heard that Meng Wangzhou's family had been allowed, allowed to enter Canada, mm-hmm. what, what were your thoughts?
0: I think my thoughts were really the same as what Canadians will will feel when they hear the news. It's, It's outraged by the news that Meng Wanzhou got really a special travel exemption for her family to fly into Canada to be with her over the holidays. And meanwhile, millions of Canadians just went through a holiday season separated by law from their families. I think Canadians will rightfully be outraged by the luxuries afforded her that they're not even allowed to get in our own country and we also heard that she uh she had broke public health guidelines in BC and rented out a restaurant and had fourteen people together on Christmas Day, presumably with her family that was just brought into the country. So she's getting this luxury treatment. And meanwhile the Michaels had been wrongfully imprisoned, as you mentioned, for over two years without basic yeah. human rights, very little consular access or access to their families. So It's just really infuriating, I think, and I think Canadians will feel the same when they hear the news, Mike.
1: Okay, the Justin Trudeau government is saying today that there was no special treatment given to Meng Wanzhou, this was not a special exemption, that under the, the existing system that we have, there is an ability for Immigration Canada to allow family reunification and to allow family members into the country. Are, are you saying that the... what you're saying the rules were broken here? The government's saying the rules were not broken? Your
2: you thoughts? know, we looked
0: into that further and, and we don't believe that they're being very truthful because the Family Reunification Act only applies to permanent residents or Canadian citizens or in very special circumstances, workers, visitors, students, or refugees. And she has none of those things. So from what we can gather, there she is not eligible under the family reunification that we've really been fighting for as Conservatives and other opposition parties since the onset of the pandemic. We've been fighting tooth and nail for people to be reunited. There's many families across the American U.S. border that have been separated since the onset of the pandemic. There right. There's people that are consistently declined to be reunited, and yet here she is with this special access. So we're thinking mm-hmm. it may have been with something called the national interest exemption, which has to be approved by a cabinet minister. So they're not wow. being very transparent. They're not being forthcoming. They need to be honest with Canadians. And you know, Mike, what I found interesting is yesterday when the prime minister's office was asked if he knew about this, they declined to comment.
1: Hmm.
0: So very peculiar there.
1: Okay, the government is saying that this, this decision was made independently by, by Immigration Canada. But un, under the existing rules, like, these family reunifications are allowed for a Canadian citizen. Or a permanent resident of Canada, Meng Wanzhou is neither of those, right? She's not a citizen right. of Canada. She's not a permanent resident of Canada. Correct.
0: That's correct.
1: Yeah. So, so that therefore you think that the rules have been broken. Okay, we need more clarification on that. But let me let me ask you about the two Michael's here now, because, you know, when I heard this story, I, I was shocked too. I just thought you got to be kidding me. And then, well, then I thought, well, is there some diplomacy going on here? Like maybe the two Michaels are getting family access. And the government did put out a statement that's saying the two Michaels have received increased family access. Now, what does that mean? Because we see CBC is reporting that they were able to exchange letters. Uh, the Globe and Mail, the Globe and Mail this morning is saying that Michael Spavor was able to have a phone call. I mean, that is not, that is not the same as having a reunification with your family. Your thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, we need a lot more transparency from the Liberal government. Yesterday on CTV Power Play, the Liberal representatives said unequivocally that it was a decision made independently of the political level of government. So I do find it very convenient that this story about increased consular access came out just right after this other story broke. And I think it's interesting that on one hand, the Liberals are saying the decision was not political, but now they're saying, oh, well, we got something out of it for the Michaels. So really, right. which one is it? And as you said, pointed out rightfully. It's not nearly the same. They're, they're not being treated at all like anyone's though with their luxuries. They've been imprisoned in Chinese communist prisons for two years. Right. Uh, unlawfully. They've had very little consular access. They've had some letters. And as you said, perhaps a phone call. That's not the same as getting your family flown in and spending Christmas together in your $13 million Vancouver mansion. I'm sorry. That yeah, is I not mean, the
1: same. Diplomacy can be a messy business. We, we all know that. And I could maybe... Maybe understand this if there was an equal exchange of family access, like if, if this, the two okay. Michaels, if their families had been allowed to travel to China to be reunited with the two Michaels, maybe I could see it then. But that doesn't appear to have happened here.
0: No, it doesn't. And I'm getting an increasing amount of emails and phone calls from across the country in my immigration file, but also from my own constituents of people really getting you know sick and tired, frankly, of being bullied by China. And we've had five years of this prime minister, and yet we're left in this weakened position where we can't stand up for ourselves. And all we get for the two Michaels is some crumbs while Meng Wanzhou is getting luxury treatment. So I think Canadians rightfully are getting pretty fed up with this kind of treatment from China. And we need a federal government that's willing to stand up for Canadians, and we're not saying
1: right. that. Speaking to Raquel Dancho, she is the federal conservative immigration critic. Do you think that I don't know. Maybe Canada lost a diplomatic opportunity here. I mean, if if we're going to give a family reunification to Meng Wanzhou, I mean, this could have been a glorious opportunity to get something for our people. And and instead, it seems like a very, very lopsided unequal exchange here. I mean, would you have been open and agreeable to an equal exchange, like equal family access visits, if that could have been uh, negotiated?
0: Well, really, I think all Canadians want the Michaels to be freed, and it's been well oh, over yeah. two years that they've been kept in these horrible conditions, and they've been imprisoned unlawfully. They haven't had the same access and rights to the rule of law that Nguyen Zouk has had. So it's not by any means equal, and I would like to see, I think all Canadians would like to see the, the true government take a stronger stance. For example, Huawei, we're the only of our five eyes allies that has not made a decision to kick out or restrict Huawei from Canadian soil. There are other countries like Australia, the UK, others that are taking a much stronger stance. Why are we not going with our allies and standing up for our values and the rule of law? I just don't understand why we're having such a weak response and allowing the two Michaels to be unlawfully imprisoned for two years. I just, I don't understand it, Mike.
1: I really feel for these two men and their families, uh two years in a Chinese jail, very little access to Canadian consular services, no access to their families. Uh you know, it just it's just heartbreaking the situation. Yeah, okay. Do you think like most Canadians obviously feel like you do they they just want these guys home. Like let's bring them mm-hmm. home. Do you think that at this point, most Canadians would say, look, I don't really give a flying you-know-what about Meng Wanzhou. Maybe just send her back, send her to China and in exchange for the two Michaels. Do you think that would be reasonable?
0: You know, I think it's a really complicated process with our extradition agreement with the United States. I think they have to go through, again, we're a rule-of-law country, unlike what seems to be going on in China. So I think we have to, and I think they are proceeding with caution. But again, I think we're being very weak in our response. Remember, the Chinese put on terribly damaging tariffs to our farmers, our pork farmers, canola, soybeans. Like, they're doing everything to us. We found out, of course, from the Global Mail in the fall that Operation Fox Hunt has been going on where we're seeing Chinese espionage, Chinese officials coming and intimidating Canadians on our own soil, Chinese Canadians becoming intimidated uh, and threatened by Chinese officials. So there is a lot of encroachment on Canadian liberties from the Chinese, right. and yet we're just getting crumbs for the two Michaels. So I think Canadians want to see our government stand up for us, and really put forward a strong policy on China. And that's not what we've
1: been seeing. Last question for you. We're just a few days away from a new American president being sworn in. Under the Joe Biden administration, maybe they will have a completely different approach to to this case. Uh, Is it your hope that uh, the American policy on this Meng Wanzhou dispute uh, is, is changed and results in the two Michaels maybe coming home to Canada? Is that your hope? You know, I
0: I think our hope is that uh, Canada is able to stand up in partnership with our allies to the Chinese. So regardless of who the American president is, it has not been going uh, well for, for Canada and for China. We need our allies and we need to be able to put forward a strong stance, united together to stand up to the bully that is China. So I think ultimately we need to do whatever we can to gain their release and to make sure China understands that they can't just push Canada around. So that's what I'd like to see.
1: Thank you for coming on today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Mike.
1: Take care. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about seniors in long-term care now, the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our seniors, of course, among the most vulnerable to the virus. We've seen hundreds of seniors die from COVID-19. For thousands of seniors in our province, though, this is a double-edged sword because there's not only the threat of the virus, there's also the loneliness, the anxiety, the depression, the deteriorating health of seniors who are separated from their loved ones can we do a better job of allowing family members wider access to their loved ones in long-term care let me introduce you now to someone who's trying to make a difference on this brenda brophy she is campaigning for visitation changes in long-term care she has a facebook page dedicated to this issue that's gaining steam and i'm very pleased to welcome her hi brenda Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, let's talk about your mom. Can you um, can you briefly share with our listeners the story of your mom and long term care and your decision that you took her out of long term care? Right? Can you tell me about her?
3: Yeah. Well, my mom Dot is a hundred years old. She turned a hundred in the early weeks of the lockdown. So wow. at the start, you know, our sadness was that we had to cancel a rather large. Family reunion type party that we had planned, including bringing in her 102 year old sister from Saskatchewan.
1: Wow!
3: Yeah, oh. it's quite a quite a story. Oh. So um, that was you know the start of of the pandemic. But as time went on, like others, sadly are still living this nightmare. I saw my mom start to crumble inward right before my very eyes, and I knew that I was going to lose her if things didn't change. So I tried with you know with no success to become an essential visitor. Um, prior to the pandemic, I was a daily visitor. I took care of my mom. I was there to fill in the gaps of care that were were needed to keep her living a good quality of life. And when the lockdown happened, I was no longer able to do that. So part of her deterioration was that loss of weight, all sorts of things. So I knew that I was, without a doubt, I was going to lose her, and that she would die alone without her daughter holding her hand as she passed, and that was unacceptable to me. Um, wow. Sadly, the struggle still goes on for others. Um, I know other daughters who have just recently been through this and been denied access to keep their loved ones thriving, or at least, you know, hanging on to some resemblance of life. And they died, and they were they were denied access, and their their moms died alone when um, the facilities claimed that they weren't actively dying and there was no need for them to be wow. there. And it's just unacceptable to me that this is still going on, and we don't have time on our side. and and the mental health of families is is an issue as well, and i don 't think anyone that isn 't living this or hasn 't been through it can actually understand
1: what right. this is like right now what was uh, when did you decide to take your mom out of long term care
3: uh, actually i have been thinking on it through the summer as I tried um, with no success to get to gain more access to care for her, and then she had a bad fall, the end of the summer labor day weekend. And I, I just made the decision at that point that I was done. I wasn't, I couldn't fight anymore. I thought about lawyers. I thought about all sorts of things. But I thought, my mom's going to, to go, and I, I'm going to lose her, yeah. and I can't do that. So she came home to us on the 23rd of September, right before we held a rally at the legislature.
1: Okay. You're, I guess you're fortunate that you're able to care for your mom at home. Like, exactly. uh, is that where she is? She's living with you now, right?
3: She is. And yeah. I, you know, and I think that's why I keep fighting. I've had people say to me, why are you still being so vocal and advocating when you've got your mom home, your fight's over. And I think it's because of that. It's such a rare situation that someone has the honor and privilege and ability um, in every aspect, logistically, financially, everything else to be able to bring their loved one home. Yeah. I'm just really fortunate that I can do that. I can work from home. i you know, I've been able to hire care, so I have that ability. Most do not. My mom is also quite easy, relatively speaking, to care for.
1: How is she doing?
3: Uh, she's doing well. So where I was told even um, right before the pandemic that she was approaching end-stage dementia because she'd quit eating, um, I didn't agree with that. So I started feeding her and making all her meals, which is why she was thriving before the pandemic hit. And since bringing her home, she's gone from 68 pounds. I weighed her last night and she's now 76. Oh, wow. so she, She's That's gained great. weight when she first came here. She couldn't play cards anymore, which she used to love. She can now do that. We, we can't, we'll never gain back all of the cognitive function that she lost in those seven months, but oh. we've gained back some and she is gaining weight. So I know she's thriving and she's, she's incredibly happy. And most of all, she's right. being cared for by someone who loves her.
1: That's wonderful to hear, and it's it's great that she's uh she's doing well. Do you think the dementia got was exacerbated or kind of got worse during when she was separated oh, from you? Oh, absolutely.
3: Yeah. And yeah. I hear this from families every single day. Um, my mom, you know, I, I've been on this dementia journey with her since two thousand and twelve. I, you know, I've studied enough that I know the impacts. I know what the trajectory looks like, and it doesn't take these sharp, sudden declines out of the blue. And that's what I was seeing with her, and. Mm. Um, She definitely deteriorated. Some days she doesn't know who I am, and I know that that wouldn't have been the case otherwise. She never had sort of episodes like that. Um, She started sundowning a little bit, which anybody who knows the disease knows what that looks like. And, you know, that just wasn't the reality. And um, her mood was changing. She was depressed for the first time in my life. Did I ever see my mom really genuinely seem sad and anxious? Couldn't express it because of her dementia. She just said she didn't feel like herself couldn't Mm. laugh wasn't cracking jokes anymore Um, but thankfully you know her her personality is her she's still her no matter what and it's come back so but yeah it's you can't leave someone alone in a room isolated with no activities no one to care for them on a one-on-one basis Um, for months on end you and I would suffer from that and we don't have dementia so it's 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 a crisis and and it's Um, mind boggling to me that this is still continued when we've got leading experts in gerontology saying that we're not getting this right. we're not we're not doing what we need to do.
1: Speaking of Brenda Brophy and her campaign for uh, visitation changes in long term care, I, th- I think it's wonderful that you've been uh, able to bring your mom home. Of course, not everybody is uh, has the ability to do that. Um, and, and it's ama- I think it's amazing that you're campaigning for others to, to, who are in the position that you were in. So let me ask you: What kind of changes do you think could be reasonably made to improve this?
3: Well, what we've heard, and especially when we, we hear from Isabel McKenzie, certainly um, the testing is—it's mind-boggling to me that that hasn't been
1: done. So there's been this the, rap- push the rapid testing for COVID in care homes. Yeah, the yeah. rapid testing, yeah. and
3: I'm listening to it. I mean, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to profess to be an expert in this, but I listened to your interview with Isabel McKenzie. I've listened to Dr. Sinha. He's been very critical of how BC is handling this when it comes to. Our seniors, we do have the most restrictive rules in the country. Um, we can see by the numbers, we're not saving them through these restrictions, not quite the contrary. And we haven't even got the statistics yet on the ones that are dying, not of COVID, but of other things that are, are you know, there's no doubt they've been exasperated um, by these restrictions. So certainly the testing, uh, we hear about the staff burnout. I have great empathy for the staff. Some people get angry with me and think that I don't understand and I you know, how dare you, it's going to bring COVID in. There hasn't been any cases linked to visitors. And you've had visitors going in for the 28,000 in care in BC since the start of July. No cases linked to a visitor. Visitor age average is 63 years old, not the age group getting COVID, testing positive. Workers are burnt out. We heard from um, Dr. Henry um, seemed to empathize with this work ethic, this presenteeism, as she called it, of workers that push through symptoms. I find that astounding that we're empathizing with that when the rest of us are being chastised and being told to stay home if you're sick. Family members, mm-hmm. and as Isabel's pointed out, there's not everybody has an essential person who was there giving care. So this is the husband or the wife that was there for hours every right. single day for years. You took that person away, it also puts a strain on staff. So logically, train these people, give them PPE and allow them access. That would also relieve the burden on staff. Mm-hmm. This can be done safely, and it's been done in many other provinces. Granted, when there's all these catastrophic outbreaks, it's it's going to be challenging, if not impossible. But you've got 75% living in single private rooms. Why aren't families being allowed in with PPE? Test the families. Do what you need to do. But, you know, the ongoing rhetoric. Now they're, you know, I think Oregon today is supposed to be announcing something about testing. Why do we wait until so many people have already died? You know, it, yeah. it's... You know, no, no, the people, there's been, there's been,
1: there's been people beating the drum on this for a long time, as you mentioned. Here's what I want to do, Brenda, right now. Just jump in there. We'll take a break. We'll come back. My guest is Brenda Brophy. You heard her uh, share her story about her 100 year old mom, um, who was deteriorating in long term care. Brenda was able to bring her mom home. She's doing well. A lot of other family members, of course, not in that position to bring their, bring their loved ones home. All right, welcome back to the show, talking about visiting loved ones in long-term care during COVID. My guest is Brenda Brophy. She's campaigning for changes to visiting rules in long-term care in BC. I would love to hear your stories about visiting your loved ones in long-term care. Call me right now, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Let's go to your calls, Tom and Surrey. Hi, Tom. Hi, Mike. Hi. Go ahead. Uh,
4: my mother my mother's uh in a care home in Surrey here. Uh, she's ninety-seven. She's blind. Um they've been in um several lockdowns into their own room lately because of um a few cases of COVID in their home. Yeah. So they were like January fifth they were supposed to um be done there their time where they were locked down into their rooms and not allowed out, and then they discovered another case or two, and so it started all over again.
1: That's tough, man.
4: Um, That's difficult. Luckily, I was a professional firefighter with the city of Burnaby, and uh, with my three other brothers that live here, they decided that I should be the essential caregiver. So I do have access to go see her, right and help her out for 40 minutes a day um and so quite often i'm in there to give her a hand to see her but she's very depressed um she, cry, she cries
1: yeah. yeah i'm sorry man i know how i know how hard it is i really do thank you tom for calling and, and sharing that brenda i'm sure you've had a lot of emotional conversations with people in similar oh. situations
3: yeah, as soon as I hear that story, I start to choke up, and I think that's yeah. why I can't I can't let this go, because, um, you know, I guess you, someone could say, well, they're fortunate that they have essential access, but most do not, and even at that, when you're still restricted in how often you can see your mom, and, you know, who doesn't have that connection to their mom, you know? like, yeah. And then you've got spouses, and I, I you know, I, I talk to those folks as well, and you imagine if... You know, it's your husband or your wife that's in there, and you've been there every day, and now you can't be. And you got to remember, most of these folks that are in there, they can't understand why. Yeah. You know, like my yeah. mom, I was lucky. I got, quickly got a phone into her room before right as the lockdown was happening. So I used to phone her every hour or two. I think I started to annoy wow. her at times. <laughs> but that's, how we, that's how I knew she was being left in bed all day, because I'd be yeah. like, Mom, why are you in bed again? Well, there's nothing to do. So mm-hmm. I could be connected and she could understand in the moment but I still recall it was like one of those freeze frame moments one day she said oh it's you I thought you'd forgotten where I lived and I got off the phone and I just cried you know inconsolably forever. and you know there's a lot worse stories than that so when he says you know his mom's sad and she cries what are we doing you know what are we actually doing
1: it's really tough let's go to another call Sean in Cloverdale hi Sean hi Mark
5: how are you good um, uh, my mom is also on um, in, in care home in uh, North and uh, she is um, pushing ninety. And my dad is ninety six, and he lives by himself at home. And, um, and see, the the the, the toys taken on him also that you know have have been able to go and see her because he was there almost all the time to to help her with there, you know whatever you know she needed just to give hand to the to the, to the caretakers right and also one other thing um um the goes on and on and this is all sad you know and, and uh we need something else that, you know to take care of all these people that they they created what they're living in you know they 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 were here um, okay. my, um my my question is why can't we come up with protective clothing yeah, you they know, they have them for stasis and all kinds of different things to, you know, to protect them.
1: Okay, Sean, thank you, thank you for the call. Let me get Brenda's thoughts on that. Okay, but you mentioned that earlier, PPE is important. Brenda.
3: Yeah, and again, I've, um, Dr. Sinha out of um, the Sinai Health, Unit, health Center in, in um, Ontario is one of the, you know, leading gerontologists in our country. He was on the news recently and, you know, made some great points. He said it isn't, this isn't rocket science. I mean, the staff. Um, there's only so many layers of protection, but how is that protection any less effective in a family member and I would suggest more so we 've got more to lose right who Who is going to want to risk and most people I talk to myself included have lived you know nearly a year now of barely leaving your house and having no social connections because you don 't want to risk anything. you know right. no one does, but you know, I used to make sure I had timed appointments so that for my next bi weekly forty five minute visit. I would have had two weeks since I got my hair done before I saw my mom just to make sure. So people are careful. Mm. And then if you Mm. give them the same PPE, how are they any more risk? And then you're going to mitigate those catastrophic consequences, as they call them, or unintended consequences of what the deterioration is just solely from the isolation.
1: Okay, we just got less than two minutes here. Joan in Richmond. He's got about a minute, Joan.
5: Hello, Mike. Thank you for your program, and thank you for bringing Brenda Sure. Uh, onto the scene, too. Uh, I wanted to share my experience. My mother just passed away in October. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was in a care facility in Vancouver. As I say, I live in Richmond. Um, All her children were uh, close except one. She had five children. Uh, She was in assisted living. And at the time of pandemic in March, I was given a phone call the very first day and told that I was not allowed to come into the building. There had been no cases of COVID in the building that she lived in. Um, Her health had deteriorated, uh, and she was of sound mind and needed very little assistance. And in December of 2019, we had taken her to our family Christmas, and that was a point at which I realized we had not um, understood her heart problems. We had an extra ten months with my mother, and the only way I could see her was during the summer when she would come okay. outside. John, thank you,
1: thank you for the call. And I, I it hate, I hate to step on you there, uh, but we're just up against the clock. But I'm sorry you lost your mom. Ah, uh, boy, I'm telling you, we could fill a whole, a whole show with these stories. But uh, Brenda, let me uh, just ten seconds left here. Where can people find your your Facebook page?
3: Uh, It's a private group, so you need to answer some membership questions, but it is Families for Change, Stories from Long-Term Care.
1: Thank you for coming on today.
3: Thank you for having me.
4: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armor All, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armor All products.
1: all right welcome back to the show let's talk about covid in bc schools now since september we've heard from teachers students parents administrators regarding covid in schools we've heard the concerns shared by teachers and parents the questions raised by students the response from those who decide what should happen next now there's a brand new study out about covid in schools in montreal and this the study concludes Schools are helping to spread the virus in that city. Our show contributor, John Jang, has the details now. John.
6: Hey, good morning, Mike. I got to tell you, I think this is a first. I haven't seen something like this anywhere else, and I've been looking. This new study now boldly stating that schools are spreading COVID-19 in Montreal. And to explain that further, I am now joined by Dr. Simonia Binyami, Associate Professor of Demography at the University of Montreal. And good morning, Dr. Binyami. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
6: As I mentioned, I haven't really seen anything like this until I came across your study earlier in the week. So could you tell us more about this research and the data that went into this and how you determined that schools in Montreal were, in fact, spreading the virus?
2: Yes, of course. So uh, we we had this uh, research question, which is, uh, you know, very relevant, as you said, like uh, governments, provincial governments, and also governments in other countries have been arguing that uh, transmission of COVID in schools is the result and not a determinant of uh, um, uh, transmission in the community. Uh, so what we, what we did was to look chronologically at how events and transmission unfolded in Montreal. Uh so we started uh, uh with data from uh the end of August. Uh and this data is compiled by um uh the the uh Direction régionale de la santé publique de Montréal. So these are official uh official municipal data uh that are uh, disseminated uh, on a weekly basis uh for Montreal as a whole and for each of its uh, uh 27 uh neighborhoods. Um, so we started and we looked at the end of August, there was no transmission of COVID in Montreal, but almost half of the neighborhoods at zero or less than five cases. And so then we looked over time what happened. And uh, to measure that, we looked at the incidence rates of COVID. So we looked at the weekly number of new cases in each age group, uh, in relationship to uh, the size of the population in each age group. And so what we saw is that about three weeks after school opened, uh, the age group where the incidence of COVID was highest was the kids age 10 to 19. And then after uh, incidence went up for this group, then it went also up for adults age 30 to 49. Uh, and so, based on this finding, which applies for the whole island of Montreal, but also in particular for those neighborhoods in the east and in the north, where uh, we know that by December more school had declared cases and more cases were declared in those schools, so we concluded that um, we think that uh, uh, children and. Uh, Children have been an important factor of community transmission, and this uh, community transmission seems to be vehiculated especially through the schools.
6: That's a very important revelation because here in British Columbia, the provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has been saying that community cases are leading to school exposures, not the other way around, which is what your study actually found.
2: Yes. Yes, I know. Uh, it's the same argument that has been put forward here, that has been put forward in Ontario, and I think that That may be true once community transmission reaches a certain level because what we do see is that so incidence goes up in kids 10 to 19, then it goes up in adults 30 to 49. At that point, this vicious circle of transmission spills over to all the age groups, the 20 to 29, the little kids 0 to 9, and then you see that then all these incidence curves go up at the same rhythm right? And this last part is indeed in line with this idea that once community transmission reaches a certain level, then no one is, is uh, you know, no one can actually get, get away from it. But the issue is how did we get there? And from the observational data that we have, it seems that, you know, uh, chronologically, it's first that incidence goes up in kids and then in adults.
6: Another point that has been made by those who want to keep schools open is that especially for younger children, schools are important for the development and mental health and social learning that they become a part of. What would be your response to that? Because I admit, I'm not a parent, so I can't talk about how important that might be, though I do have a vague understanding of it.
2: I am a parent, and I'm the first to recognize that it's very important for kids to go to school. Based on our study, and we did the study in Montreal exactly because we were trying to, to understand a little bit about what is going on here since rates are so high, um, you know, in the conclusions of our study, we say that right now in Quebec, because community transmission has gotten to be so high, we fear that reopening schools for everybody, uh, you know, in presence is going to increase again the, the the overall rates and therefore it's going to limit the usefulness of the other measures that the government has put in place. And so what we were suggesting or we were asking uh, to to start a discussion about is to just for a short time to limit the amount of kids that are attending school in person so that we can bring a community transition down sufficiently to be able to reopen school more safely which I think is a little bit the objective, especially because I'm not sure you know, but uh, the projections of public health for um, for Quebec from uh, from the Quebec public health is that uh, hospital dedicated hospital capacity for COVID is going to be exceeded in Montreal in the next couple of weeks. So Premier Legault has already canceled surgeries, has already canceled other procedures. So we are really in the scenario of the flattening the curve, right, which is exactly what we need to do. And so we are arguing that to do that, to limit the number of kids who are in presence in school right now, would be an important measure to be able to um, to get back in control of the situation and be able to reopen school as soon as possible safely.
6: She is Dr. Simona Binyami, Associate Professor of Demography at the University of Montreal. Dr. Binyami, thank you so much for your time here today.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you again and stay safe.
1: Let's talk about the homeless encampment in Strathcona Park in Vancouver now. If you remember last month, the Vancouver Park Board announced that the camp was uh, going to be cleared out. People would be moved into permanent housing. A month later, though, the camp is still there. And look what's going on now. The city and B.C. housing installing showers, washrooms, and a warming tent on the street near the homeless camp. I know, It doesn't look like the homeless camp will be shut down at any time uh, soon. Let's check in on this now with my guest, Fiona She's a community advocate. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Fiona, thanks a lot for coming on.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Can you tell me about these facilities that are being installed down there? Like, what does it look like? What are they doing?
7: Sure. So this is something that's been a long time coming. Um, We've requested warming tent showers, potable water, and indoor washrooms since the camp. Uh, got to the park in June of 2019. So now um, there's a stretch of Raymer where the city is installing a warming tent. It's nearly ready to open. The showers have been put in place. There's washrooms, showers, um, there'll be electrical outlets and potable running water as well. So again, it's something that's been a long time coming. We actually requested those um, even in uh, Oppenheimer Park uh, starting in 2018-19 over the winter. So um, certainly things that are necessary just for health and safety, physical safety, sanitation, hygiene, especially during these times of the pandemic. So it's been a, a request um, we've been making for a long time. We actually went to the community and we're raising funds and had nearly enough to purchase a shower, made a final push to um, the city and sent letters to public health officers, uh, lobbied the attorney general, went to every body of authority, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health City, Parks Board, and uh, and then at that time we finally saw some movement happening from the city.
1: Right, okay, so four showers, six washrooms uh, being installed, they're in trailers, you got the warming tent will be going up here very soon. Can you describe right now, like the, the, the camp right now, Fiona, like how many tents are down there now?
7: So we still have about 200 tents, about 200 people still wow. in the camp. Um, obviously, we're under much more extreme weather conditions, so there are less people than in the, in the summer, but we still see people coming and finding shelter almost every night. People are turning up who maybe were trying to stay outdoors in less ideal circumstances uh, on the street, on Hastings, elsewhere where there was, uh, you know, just less uh, resources available um, at the camp. There's, there's always food, there's resources, there's donations, um, Um, Now, of course, we have the warming tent and uh, the the showers and washrooms as well. So people are are arriving still, uh, you know, seeking shelter. There's also the RVs that have been uh, for many years on on Raymer, which also um, are are homes to many people who are otherwise unhoused.
1: Okay, 200 people. That sounds like it was maybe a little fewer people, a little smaller than what it was at at its peak.
7: Certainly, in the summer, it was closer yeah. to to uh, five hundred at the peak. Um, right. So now, yeah. with the with the just the more extreme weather uh, conditions, um, there are less people. Sometimes people will seek shelter elsewhere with friends or leave for a few days and come back. Um, you know, it's been very rainy, very muddy and wet, and you know, it's, yeah. it's quite a difficult way for people to to live.
1: Oh, it must have been brutal down there the other night in that windstorm.
7: Absolutely, and you know, where people are living in tents that are designed for a week in the summer at most, and their are seeing people's tarps and tents being ripped off and yeah. ripped apart, and people uh, losing belongings, losing parts of their tents. So there's always a need for more community donations. There's obviously always that need. We're always pushing for the permanent housing, not not uh, a temporary solution, not the shelters right. and the hostels necessarily, but permanent housing, so people are not left in these circumstances.
1: Right. Speaking to Fiona York about the homeless camp in Strathcona Park. Um, you mentioned that you you guys had been pushing for these facilities for a while with the showers and the washrooms going in and a, and a warming tent uh, for people to get through the winter months. But, I mean, I don't know, in some ways is, it, is this kind of a, I don't know, bittersweet in a way because you're getting what you want. But it also it also seems to indicate that the camp is sort of being, setting up. An, they Like the city is saying this is temporary, but when you start setting up showers and washrooms and warming tents, it, it doesn't have a temporary feel to it. It's like, when are people think, going to be able to move out of there?
7: I think that's correct, and that's always the concern with shelters as well, that that's seen as a solution rather than... A step or um, something, you know, which is what it is, which is something that can be very traumatizing and, and triggering for people to go into a shelter situation. Um, but at the same time, it does show that there is a little bit of uh, support and compassion for people, and we're seeing more and more people who are homeless facing. Um, you know, so many dire situations. We had a woman uh, outside the library the other day whose blankets were set on fire. There was a gentleman who passed away on Hastings Street just last night. And then the other day, there was a gentleman who was shot down by police on Hastings as well. So people who are homeless really face some brutal futures and uh, circumstances. And so having that little bit of humanity finally um, after pushing for so long is is really something that's well
1: But it's not sustainable, right? I mean, it's not the answer. I mean, like, if you take a look at... I mean, I've seen the photos of of the garbage and everything and people living so rough. I mean, we've seen violence. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is not sustainable, right? But
7: there still needs to be... uh different solutions and so there needs to be that wraparound support and meeting people where they are at and we saw this with the whole fight around harm reduction that you need to pe- meet people where they're at and provide the resources that they need where they're at because that's where they're going to seek them and that's what's going to work for them and having those sort of peer-based solutions, meeting people's needs um, so that they're safe wherever they are and providing that hygiene yeah. and sanitation and support is really necessary because it does really, you know, it's something we even in refugee camps and, and elsewhere around the world, This it, like the number one thing that's provided when people are sleeping rough in these kind of circumstances.
1: Fiona, thanks for coming on today.
7: Thank you so much.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about body-worn cameras for police officers. Now, pretty common in cities around North America, notably in the United States. Not as common, certainly here in Canada. But with a lot of focus on police conduct these days, are police-worn body cameras would this be a good thing to introduce in Canada. Now, check this out. The RCMP in uh, the territory of Nunavut in Iqaluit, to be precise, are wearing the body-worn cameras, part of a pilot project to see how it will go. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Brian Sovey, President of the National Police Federation. Very pleased to welcome him back. Brian, how you doing?
8: I'm very good, Mike. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you for coming on. Tell me what's going on here in Iqaluit with these cameras.
8: Uh, it's it's basically an advanced deployment with technology the RCMP already has to, uh, a, a, an extreme climates to determine how the cameras are going to operate, um, what the public perception is of police walking around with body-worn cameras on them, uh, as well as uh, to get an idea of what the administrative burden or the administrative support is required for all of the footage that's captured and captured. Uh, what that's going to look like when you have a nationwide rollout come the end of this year.
1: Okay, interesting. Uh, do you guys support it at the at the Police Federation?
8: Uh we do. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay. body-worn cameras is one extra tool to gather documentary evidence of uh, interactions with the police and and with Canada
1: yeah so how would it work? And you describe I me mean, a lot of people know how these things work the The cameras are quite small now. The technology's gotten quite amazing. So it's basically a small sort of clip on camera in the front of a police officer's uniform. Is that how it works and then it records it records kind of a point of view stream uh,
8: yeah, I mean, there's a number of different versions out there, but yeah, they essentially it's a little smaller than uh, an iphone and and it's either applied uh, magnetically to uh, the external. Uh, um, soft body armor or clipped onto the uniform. As those are one of the areas of concern that we have to identify is is uh, is the camera and its positioning and its placement going to interfere with any of a the use of force options that are already on a belt or on a, uh, a piece of body armor, and it's not going to have any impact to the safety of the member, as well as how do we ensure that it stays on, right? Uh, or is it going to get knocked off in a scuffle and all of a sudden it's kind of pointless,
1: so. Mm. Okay. Can you describe like the rationale behind these cameras? Why, why are they a good thing? Like what do they do and what is the benefit of them?
8: Well, in the end, we're, we're we're moving into 2021, right? So uh, the majority of Canadians have cell phone cameras, and we've seen over the last decade a uh, number of snippets of video from uh, onlookers with respect to interactions with the police. So shouldn't the police move forward and have uh, body-worn cameras that capture the entire interaction that can be used in a criminal or an administrative or a public complaint or a civilian oversight proceeding um, that can only expedite all of those things uh, and either um, uh, provide a good record um, for Canadians as to what the interaction was.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and it's always made sense to me. I've always thought that they were a good idea and that we should adopt them more widely uh, in Canada. I mean, they seem to be more common in the United States. And it just seems to me, Brian, for, for, your thoughts on this, like I think it's these cameras could actually go a long way to not only to protect the public, but also protect uh, police officers from false, ac- false accusations of misconduct. I mean, let's have a, let's have a neutral, accurate video record of, of everything that happened. And, uh, and I think that that'd be a good thing for everybody. Your thoughts.
8: Uh, agreed. Now, obviously there's some concerns from our perspective, as well as from the RCMP's perspective and the privacy commissioner's perspective about how you capture that video. You know, the, uh, example that I've used is, uh, me, everyday Canadian is standing and Tim Hortons ordering my cup of coffee and a police officer is in line behind me. Do I expect to be recorded throughout my daily life while I'm ordering that coffee? So we have to figure out in, the, in, in defense of Canadians' rights to privacy, um, when does that camera go on? Does it stay on all the time? And at the same time, with respect to our membership's privacy who are wearing those cameras, if they get a call from their spouse, significant other or child at daycare, can they turn the camera off? So while they're having lunch, does it have to be recording? Those types of little details really need to be to, to be looked at and ironed out for a, for a seamless rollout.
1: Yeah. How about the storage? I mean, when you're taking hours and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours of, uh, of video, I mean, obviously there's a, a storage component there, uh, and a cost and capacity. Are there any concerns there?
8: There are, and that's, again, what we're, we're, we're going to be looking at when the pilot project is done in Nunavut is really how many hours are required um, to actually manage this program. And our concern, obviously, is police officers are hired to be proactive in their communities and enforce the laws. They're not necessarily there to be administrative assistants and logging and taking out and, and working on video footage. So how do we manage that administrative burden so it doesn't take away from the public safety aspect in a community.
1: Yeah. How do most police rank-and-file police officers feel about this issue? Like, would you say? Like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've never talked to, I haven't talked to a lot of cops about this issue. But I imagine, like, if, if you are a hard-working, ethical, honest police officer, I, I would think, like, why not put the camera on? Like, bring it on.
8: Uh, By and large, the feedback that we've had is that our members are are encouraged by and and are looking forward to uh, body-worn cameras. You know, uh, people have to keep in mind that, you know, at least in the RCMP, we answer about 3 million calls for service nationally every year, and less than one-tenth of 1% of those results in any use of force. Um, so our members are extremely good. They're very good at de-escalation and resolving situations peacefully. And they're encouraged by body-worn cameras because ultimately, yeah. like you said, frivolous or vexatious complaints uh, will show up to be exactly that. Um,
1: and, and and if there is a serious incident, then you've got a video record. Um, so I don't know. It's always made a lot of sense to me. Is there potential for uh, body-worn cameras to also have a role in just day-to-day police work is solving crimes like if you've got a video record of a, a police officer's movement and in, in investigating a crime uh, could that potentially turn into evidence later in a, in a case
8: Oh, it could be. And, you know, those are some of the details that you have to have to work on is 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 uh, whether or not that video footage is captured lawfully, if there are some privacy expectations uh, and, and as such. Now, obviously, judicial authorizations down the road, if there is something there, you can go and you can get a production order or whatever to 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 use that. But those are all little details uh, legally, and I'm not a lawyer. I'm just throwing this out there, that uh, Canadians value their privacy. So how do we um, tailor this program to ensure that it's not infringed upon?
1: Speaking of Brian Sovey, he's the president of the uh, National Police Federation. Uh, Brian, fair to say, like, basically you guys are the union uh, representing the RCMP officers, right? Yes. Yes, we are. So... Let me ask you, we just got two minutes left. What's going on in Surrey? Like Last time I talked to you, we talked about replacing the RCMP in Surrey. They're moving forward with the municipal police force. I know you guys are uh, bitterly disappointed about that. What's the latest there? We just have a minute left here.
8: Uh, well the latest there obviously they 've hired a chief and a deputy chief they're looking for some superintendents to fill those uh, those those positions We're still uh, advocating for uh, transparency within the hiring process within the transition process. Very little is coming out of city council or the police board to be transparent with the residents of Surrey. The budget uh, has tripled up to sixty three sixty four million dollars from the initial nineteen uh property taxes have gone up eight percent and a levy on top of that so i think residents are starting to see that this is an extremely expensive transition and not exactly what was promised and they might end up with less than what they have right now so a lot of concerns and we'll continue to be the truth tellers if you will uh if the city council and the police board or not
1: okay we continue to follow it closely thanks for coming on today thanks mike